I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. In the morning when you rise, do you open up your eyes, see what I see? Do you see the same things every day? That is the music of Yes, featuring Tony Kay, who is my guest today on the program. Now, Yes are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They've sold millions of albums. They have legions of devoted fans, and they've been around for 50 years. So does Tony Kay need an introduction? You're probably thinking no. Well, I'm thinking yes. So let me tell you a little bit about Tony Kay. Born in Leicester in the mid-1940s, Tony Kay's family was playing music long before he arrived. People say things like, oh, so-and-so was born into a musical family, but that usually means their dad had a dusty guitar in his real estate office or, I don't know, their mom sang in a choir in college before becoming an optometrist. But in the case of Tony Kay, he really did come from a musical family. In fact, you could say music was hardwired into his DNA. His grandmother was a concert pianist. His grandfather was a jazz saxophonist. And his dad? Well, his dad kept a dusty guitar in his real estate office. I'm joking. At four, Kay began training in formal piano. By eight, he was playing notable classical pieces by heart. Just to give you a comparison here, at four... I was eating bowls of frosted flakes using orange juice instead of milk. By eight, I was still doing that. But back to our story. There were no two ways about it. Tony Kay was a prodigy. By 12, he was playing live, performing solo and duet classical pieces. The plan? Well, the plan was to study at the Royal College of Music in London and become a working concert pianist. But... Kay got thrown off of his straight-shot musical trajectory by, you guessed it, jazz. Inspired by everyone from Count Basie to Duke Ellington, by 15, Tony Kay had founded a jazz trio, and not long after, he became a member of the Danny Rogers Orchestra. The combination of jazz, a lack of confidence, and, let's face it, maybe even some burnout, all added up to Kay deciding not to to go to the Royal College of Music in London, but instead enroll at Leicester Art College, where he studied advertising and design, and at night, well, at night, he played in bands. With the grand piano his grandmother had left him after her death, collecting dust back at home, by the 60s, Tony Kay had all but abandoned his classical roots, and his love of jazz morphed into a love of pop music. A move to London and several nights out at the Marquee was all it took 
to spin K around rather thoroughly. At that point, he was playing a transistor-based combo organ called a Vox Continental. That was a relatively new instrument that was introduced in 1962. So, the new instrument, the new city, and the new genre of music that had K under its spell were all collectively blowing his mind. But, keyboardist, occultist, and genuine madman genius Graham Bond is the guy that really knocked Kay out. People who described what it was like to see Graham Bond play live sound the same as people who describe years later what it was like to see the Sex Pistols. One person I talked to who used to frequent the marquee said this, Bond was a brilliant madman. He was ramshackle, and he was utterly genius. He was a combination of Mozart and a werewolf, pounding away under a full moon during the apocalypse. Aside from Bond's undeniable charisma and captivating performances, what really made an impression on Kay was the fact that you didn't have to play a keyboard like a piano. You could do other stuff with it. And that's exactly what Kay decided to do. Using this new approach to his instrument, Kay spent the better part of the 60s packing his CV. He played in the covers and comedy outfit, The Federals. Then he was in Johnny Taylor's star combo. And then he was in Winston's Fums. He toured Europe with Johnny Halliday. And then he punched the clock for a bit with a band called Bittersweet. By this point, Kay had become a bit of a night owl and a road dog. Two animal associations perfectly suited for a life in rock and roll. And that rock and roll life was about to really begin. Now, there was a London-based psych outfit called Mabel Greer's Toy Shop that, at the time, had generated a bit of a buzz thanks to a lot of shows all around London that ranged from universities to clubs like The Marquee and Electric Garden. Needless to say, Mabel Greer's Toy Shop had amassed quite a local following. John Peel even invited them onto his show to record a few numbers. At one point, Tony Kay had met Mabel singer John Anderson, and when Mabel's decided to form a new group, Kay's name came up, and bass player Chris Squire invited him to try out. Then these things happened. Tony Kay got the gig, the band became Yes, and in three years, they put out three records. 1969's self-titled effort, 1970's Time in a Word, and 1971's the Yes album. Okay, so now we're in 1971, only 47 more years to go to bring you up to date about the story of Tony K. Watch how fast I can make the years go. It's not going to be easy, but I am a trained professional. So here's the thing. K may have left his classic training behind, but in many ways he was still very much a purist. How much of a purist was he? Well, while on tour in the US to promote the Yes album, K said no to playing the synthesizer, and that got him fired. He was replaced by Rick Wakeman, and that was that. He played with the prog band Flash, then he formed Badger with David Foster, and then he moved to Los Angeles where, oddly enough, he lived next door to Led Zeppelin's John Bonham. I'm sure those two guys spent many quiet nights together playing chess and talking about Proust. 
Now, look, I don't know the details of what was going on in Tony Kay's life at that time, but if the stories are true, let's just say this. The road dog and the night owl had combined to uh, become one hell of a party animal. But he was still packing his CV. He hung out with Bowie in Jamaica, and later he toured with him. His new band, Detective, that he formed with Michael DeBar, actually opened up for Kiss, and then Tony Kay joined Badfinger. He ended up coming back to Yes in 1982. He actually played on their massive comeback album, 90125. And then, in 1994, look how fast I got us to 1994, he left Yes again. Uh, He played in a Neil Young tribute band, and he did some playing on some Pink Floyd tribute albums that were overseen by his buddy Billy Sherwood. Uh, But for the most part, he was kind of retired from the music business, and he was hanging out in Sherman Oaks and the Cayman Islands. He fell in love. He got married. He was playing some tennis. What do you want from the guy? It had been a long rock and roll life, and he wanted to just kind of chill. Who could blame him? And who could blame him for joining Yes! Again, he decided to uh, join his bandmates for the Yes 50 Summer Tour, a tour which uh, takes the band all the way through July on uh, on a fairly sprawling tour. Tony Kay is back temporarily, but if you get a chance to see him, I would recommend that you do. I don't want to get into the factions of Yes because there are two camps, or are there three? Well, there are several camps featuring several members and former members. And frankly, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's confusing. Uh, there has been a lot of people that have gone in and out of yes. Some of them are friends. Some of them aren't. There's some hostility and there's some love in all of those camps. But Yes 50 does one really great thing, and it brings a lot of people that have been in that band together again, and it's a pretty cool thing. So if you get a chance to see the Yes 50 tour this summer, I think that would be a good night out. How many bands can say They've been together uh, in one form or another for 50 years. That's a rhetorical question, but I'll answer it anyway. Not that many. Tony Kay is the distinguished gentleman of rock and roll. I think you're going to like this guy. He's very cool, and I enjoyed talking to him. So here's my chat with Tony Kay of Yes. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I know we're both tennis players, and I started playing tennis at the same age that you started playing uh, piano. I think I was five. And now at my age, my relationship to my racket is totally different. And I'm wondering, how is your relationship to your instrument? Has it changed over the years? Do you regard it in a different way? That's, that's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought of it in, uh, in, in that way, except... You know, as we know on the tennis court, when you actually become one with the racket, then your performance as a tennis player just takes on a whole other um, uh, aspect. Um, it's pretty much that way, I think. With uh, I, I'm not sure that. Um, that's general. I mean, I I found in the past and, and first kind of um, felt that feeling when I was a, a classical player. You know, back in when I was 
you know, learning to be a classical pianist, uh, where you do have to become kind of one with the instrument. In rock and roll, I'm maybe not as much, but but certainly I I I get what you um, you're getting at. It's an interesting question. Um, and I think a certain amount of it, with with all of us, you know, even uh, if you're a drummer, um, for instance, that 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 maybe, you know, that applies too, maybe even more. And when I look at drummers play, I mean, they certainly look like they're they're with one with what they're doing, right? Well, yeah. I mean, th- there are days where I'll play tennis and the racket feels like an extension of my hand, and there are other days where it feels like it's 300 pounds. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's the days when you, when, you, when you feel completely with one with, uh, with the game and, and with the court and the ball, and uh, everything seems to flow. Well, they call it, uh, you know, in tennis, they call it the zone. I mean, it's in, it's in the zone. And when you watch tennis players who are in the zone or actually not in the zone, um, it becomes obvious what, you know, not being in the zone is. Um, and all tennis players have days like that. I think uh, maybe Dimitrov had that problem today yes he did (laughs) yeah i i saw that (laughs) yeah i saw a little bit of his interview um a shame really because actually he's uh he could be a great you know it's it's just so difficult for these new guys to and he's not so new but you know what i mean uh to actually take on the greatness it's it's not guaranteed. No, no. He has all of the attributes of of uh, future greatness, but for some strange reason, I guess you know. Sometimes it's all in your head. Um, you know, your your physical gifts may be there, but it's all about the mental the mental aspect of it. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you were mentioning in rock and roll, you were saying that that rock and roll wasn't so much hinging on that kind of harmony, whereas classical was. What is the difference between the two? Why does one require that? Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I was sort of comparing the, uh, the, 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 the tennis angle with being a classical um, a pianist. Um, you know, both of those things are very singular occupations. And um, I, I think that's what I was trying to get at, where... Playing in a band, playing in a, in a in a loud raucous rock and roll band, you're playing with a whole bunch of different people. You know, I, I'm I, I think you can get in the zone doing that, and and that has happened many times with me on those nights where the band just clicks. You know, where we're all playing as one. It doesn't happen, I don't think. Uh, a lot, but those nights do happen. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, I can remember being in the zone on the tennis court maybe five times, which is... <laughs> yeah, in 30 years, yeah. Yeah. I, I know, I, I, I know. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen that... And you really know when it happens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's almost like it reminds me of art in the sense that you keep returning to it because it's a quest for perfection. It is, yeah. It's, it's a very individual thing, too. You know, playing um, playing an instrument and, uh, and 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 even playing in a band is a very in, a very individual thing. Also, when you sort of changed your mind about going into classical music, was that uh, a decision that you had thought about years later? Did did you struggle with that decision? And did you ever sort of were you tempted to ever return to it when you were really playing rock and roll full time? No, I, I, I left it behind. I, I, I was a pretty, um, pretty decent um, classical player, um, you know, and, uh, and of course my, my grandmother was a classical pianist. She taught me when I was, you know, three years old, four years old. And then I went to different teachers and learned, uh, you know, the, the thing. And of course the, what was supposed to be the end result. I'm not even too sure because, um, you know, there's only very, very few amazing virtuoso classical piano players. It's not an easy thing to achieve. Uh, I did realize that. You know, I had one major competitor, um... And of course, the idea was to go to the Royal School of Music in London and uh, and progress from there. I knew that uh, that I was probably not going to do it, and um, and I, I, of course, I was playing at that time in you know I was playing in a big band, a big swing band. Um, I was playing in a blues band. I played clarinet in a in a traditional jazz band. I played in a rock and roll band. So I was kind of doing all those things too. And I thought, you know, I really like this. <laughs> this could be good. And of course, this was the early '60s, where well, we didn't really know what it was. You know, I mean, we didn't even have the Beatles. Um, but I was certainly listening to, uh, you know, American rock and roll, and um, I love big band music and all that. So, you know, it, uh, that decision was sort of made for me in a way, and I kind of knew that I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it because I didn't really see a future in it. Whereas rock and roll, I thought, hmm, well, yeah, this could be good. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't really so much a rebellion as it was a recognition. Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a rebellion at all, and uh, I, I left it behind completely. I don't have any of that. Um, I didn't have, you know, unlike Rick and uh, certainly Keith. Um, you know, they they incorporated it more in. In, in in their styles and their music, I didn't. I I left it behind, and I, I became much more uh, interested in 
you know, different different forms of well, of course, it trans it transpired into playing the Hammond. That's right, know, which is a completely different instrument, and um, and the the my the, the influences on Hammond were you know certainly a mile away from uh, classical uh, piano players. But to um, to play the Hammond, you don't use classical rudiments. No, no, I didn't. Um, I mean, I love the way that Keith uh, incorporated in, into the Hammond playing. I mean, but there's only one Keith. Right, right. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, and he he pretty much cornered that whole <laughs> that whole thing. Um, he was the only. Uh, he was the only one who did it. I mean, my personal, you know, in the in the Hammond thing um, back then was was it was before Keith, before I'd even seen. It was um, a guy called Graham Bond, who was and still is unknown. Unfortunately, uh, killed himself. Um, but he had a band called the Graham Bond Organization with uh, Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce. Uh, Dick Hexel Smith, and it was more of an R and B thing. But he was the first, he was the first guy who uh, turned up the, uh, the, the 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 growl on the Hammond. I thought, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be. Up until then, it was kind of like Jimmy Smith and Jimmy McGriff, and you know, there's more jazz players, Georgie Fame and Alan. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, he was the, he was the one that kind of turned me on to the uh, you know turn up the Hammond and make it growl thing, which is what I tried to do in a in a sort of more R and B way. As you progressed with the band and contemporary started to show up. Were there guys doing what you were doing where you went, oh, that guy, that guy is pretty good? Did it, in other words, are you, were you competitive and were you also sort of marveling at who was showing up on the Hammond or on the keyboards? Uh, there was only a few, you know, there was only a few people doing it, really, Keith. Uh, of course, uh, John, John Lord. Um, uh, Rick, maybe to an extent, although... He wasn't really. I mean, he was more, much more of a classical approach. Um, but certainly, John Lord and Keith were were definitely uh, doing what I was trying to do. What about someone like Steve Winwood? Yeah. Um, Steve was a, was a little bit more of a mixture. I mean, I loved his playing. I mean, he was uh, he was a great Hammond player, but um, <clears throat> maybe more in the in the style of Georgie Fame and uh, you know more jazz approach in in terms of sound. How diligent were you as a practicer? Were you the kind of guy who you would put the time in three or four hours a day, or would you? Were, were, did you sometimes let that go? Like, how were you in terms of your your conscientiousness towards your your practicing habits? 
No, I never practiced. <laughs> Come on, is I, that true? I never, lived, I never lived in a place that was big enough to to to, to have another Hammond in there. It was, <laughs> the Hammond was always at a rehearsal place. <laughs> so you, so how do you maintain your chops by by not being able to with not being able to practice? Like, what do you do? Well, we are, we played all the time. You know, we played uh, con- continually. Um, uh, I was always in a band. We we started our our, our, our lives in Germany, and uh, we played uh, clubs in Germany ten, twelve hours a day. We were constantly, you know, in those early days. Um, you know, I mean, the, my first stint in uh, in in Germany in Hamburg was opposite the Beatles. The Silver Beatles. Uh-huh. They were pre Beatles, right? And that's, uh, you know, because our, our, we found an audience over there with, um, because Germany was uh, still kind of occupied, American occupied, and um, there was a lot of um, American soldiers there, and they became our audience. And of course, we were playing. Uh, American music, we had an audience. We didn't really have that audience in England, not to that extent. Um, so these clubs in in Germany, all of all the big towns in Germany, but specifically Hamburg and Munich and Berlin, um, which were occupied with thousands of, uh, of American servicemen, who were listening and who had records of American artists and the music we were playing. So it was uh, it was the perfect uh, learning uh, ground. Any interactions with the Beatles? You know, I used I don't really remember. I used to go see them every night. They were they were in a club opposite. And, uh, it, of course, it was Tree Ringo, uh, George Best, and, you know, there was the three of them, and I think Klaus Foreman. I don't know, it was a different, uh, it was a different band. They were the Silver Beatles then. Um, but, yeah, and, and but they were the best band on the strip. You know, when we finished our set, we, we'd, go, uh, we'd go watch them. And we did like ten sets a night. I mean, we we played all afternoon and all night. So you know, that seems unimaginable. Ten sets a night just seems Herculean. Uh, we never stopped playing. They they just uh, stayed open, and uh, it it was a crazy thing. What about now? Certainly now you have a room big enough to practice a, a Hamdorgan. <laughs> what is your relationship to practice now? I mean, I know you're on the road a lot, but um, do you find that you are diligent now, or can you? How does that work for you in terms of your practice, your practice um, process? Well, actually, I mean, I'm I'm not on the road a lot. This is a you know, this is pretty much a, a one-off situation, you know, because of because of the 50th um, anniversary. Um, so I don't, uh, um, 
you know, obviously in the last few years, Billy and I have, uh, you know, worked on several projects. Um, Yoso and uh, Bill Shatner and uh, Circa and, you know, done a few short tours, but but yeah, I mean, uh, not a lot. So you know, I spend a lot of time. Uh, I have a little studio set up, you know, with uh, with synths and uh, you know, piano piano synths and a, and my little Hammond setup, which is not a Hammond. It's you know, a, a, a synth synthesized Hammond, and um, and I do a lot of playing like that. You know, I record and. Uh, um, play every day. What are your, uh, you know, obviously 50 is an amazing milestone, but 49 was no slouch. I mean, I know we, we tend to, we tend to sort of, uh, make big deals out of certain numbers, but you know, 47, 48, 49 were a big deal too. But for you, what is your, um, your, what are your immediate sort of in the next couple of years, musical ambitions? Like, what do you have in mind for musical projects for yourself? I have no. I have none. You have none. <laughs> no, no. I, I have no uh, no ambition. My uh, my passion, really, my passion is now and has been for the last few years is editing. I I, I got into uh, editing um, visual visual editing and. Uh, it, it, I mean, it all started with um, when iMovie came out, and I was fascinated because I'd always been um, frustrated that, uh, that you know, normal people actually couldn't do that. We didn't have the equipment to be able to do that or the facility to do that. And, of course, iMovie completely changed all of that, and, and I just uh, gobbled it up. It was like a, an amazing thing for me. Oh, I can actually take images and edit them. And so I, you know, I ran out of, uh, ran out of space on iMovie and, uh, and, and went to Final Cut, and, uh, and, and I'm still learning. You know, but it is a bit of a passion. I, I make, uh, you know, videos and whatnot. Uh, do you make them for other musicians, or do you make it for non-music projects? Yeah, yeah. Um, mainly for my wife, who is a, um, a musician and a singer. So um, we do we we do quite a quite a few uh, videos together, a couple of couple of times a year. Have... We'll go on holiday, and uh, you know, I'll film her, and we'll we'll have a specific idea for a video, and uh, and I will film her, and then come back and you know, make videos. Is rock and roll by nature, because it's such a competitive, strange arena, is it difficult to maintain friendships? Have you found that, or is it easier than it seems? I'm pretty isolated. <laughs> By choice? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I was pretty much up to maybe 50, 60, 17 years ago. Um, I was pretty gregarious, and, uh, you know, I was a kind of a club guy, and 
rock and roll friends and whatnot. But uh, but then I met a woman that I wanted to marry for the first time. <laughs> and I, of course, I was relatively old at that point, and uh, and that sort of changed everything really. Um, it was uh, it was a whole different turning point in my life. You know, I fell in love with someone for the first time really, and. Uh, and got married, and uh, and that life really became. She became the the center of my life. You know, in uh, in LA, we have our friends, we have uh, mutual friends, and I I have you know some friends from from the past, and uh, but you know not many, not many. I'm pretty you know pretty isolated in a way. I play tennis. I edit. I play music. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that sounds like your stress level is at about zero, though. That's good. That's something that I had to uh, that I had to change. Yeah, yeah. It was it was great getting off the road, and it was great getting out of that life. It was great to get out of that uh, that um, competitive maelstrom of madness. And uh, and it was yeah stress level kind of went down. It's a difficult thing to do. I think removing yourself from it is is wise in terms of self preservation because sometimes if you stay in it and you stay the club guy, uh, it's a very sort of indelicate ending if you're not careful. Well, of course it can be, and I've seen a lot of people uh, go down that road and uh, and implode. Um, I was always very careful not to, uh, you know, not to go down that road. Um, so, yeah, it never really happened to me. It just gets to a stage where you just don't want it anymore. You know, it it becomes meaningless and something more meaningful takes over. And when you say you're isolated, you just mean you're isolated in terms of like you don't hang out in the rock and roll world because you're still a gregarious yeah. guy. You have your friends, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's it's much more simple, you know. And I like to go to the islands and just you know hang out, do nothing, and just you know my days are, uh, are kind of easy now. Of course. I have reached an age where I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be 50 forever or 40, <laughs> you know. When 70 goes by, you go, oh, well, okay. You know, I feel 40, but, you know, things have changed. <laughs> are, you, are you happier now than you've ever been? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm happy because I found you know, someone that I want to be with. Um, I was always, uh, you know, that kind of guy on the road. Um, I was a bit of a road dog. I never had, you know, a specific home ever. I was always kind of traveling or, you know, being somewhere else. But, you know, now... Um, Thank God, you know, at long last, I, I, I found a, you know, more of a permanent um, ex 
existence. Were you reluctant to go back to yes for this 50th thing or was it was it an easy thing to get you back or did you have to think about it? No, you know, I I had to think about it and um I you know, I didn't really know I I had met a couple of years ago Steve very very briefly one day at a hotel when I was visiting Billy. I'd been to the Greek theater to watch uh, the show the night before, and I went, um, I went to the hotel and bumped into Steve, and I hadn't seen Steve really, although, you know, the the union tour certainly, but there were so many people in that band, and Steve, I think, was a little bit isolated on that tour. I hadn't seen Steve since 1968. Wow. <laughs> you know, so... Um, it was a it was a little strange. Alan, of course, had been in Circa very briefly, right? Um, and uh, and I knew Jay. I I'd never ever met Sir Jeff, so you know that was. Uh, and I'd never met uh, John, the singer. So there was a few people that uh, you know um, that were strangers. And, um, but of course, I went on the, uh, on the cruise, on the cruise to the edge, and, uh, just as a kind of a tryout. And, uh, and it worked beautifully, you know. So I got the offer to, uh, you know, to be, to be on, on this tour. Um, and of course, it was 50 years. I mean, it's never going to happen again. I'm not going to, uh, you know, there's never, there's never going to be a hundred years. So, and um, and it was great. And I, I, you know, it, it was an immediate connection with all of these guys. They're all fantastic guys. And uh, I mean, I can't, uh, I can't say enough about uh, how generous and kind, especially you know Jeff. Because we are playing together, when you know, I I don't take over from him. He, you know, he's he's the keyboard player, and yes, and I just kind of play along, do my do my Hammond bit, and uh, it was, you know, it was so um, it was so cool. So you know, and uh, but it's also great to see that the uh, all the alumni, all the people that. Uh, you know, from the past, Bill and Patrick and Tom, and uh, you know, I'm pretty sure if Peter and Chris, uh, who were, were still around, they would be a part of it too. You know, and it's great to see the alumni being so supportive. You know, uh, Patrick's going to be in Philadelphia. He's going to play with the band. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's. It's a very friendly, um, nice situation. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't, uh, if it had been, um, I don't know, with the other band, I don't really know. I don't, uh, I don't talk to them, so um, it may not be the same. Um, and, you know, the fact that the alumni have come over to, obviously there's, competition going on between the the two yeses 
ridiculous as that is. Um, that <laughs> <laughs> um, they the, they are being very supportive of this band is uh, kind of a you know a testament to how how great the people are in this band. I you know. Well, I, I can't say anymore, really. It's nice to hear that. And and what what do you admire about Jeff about as a player? Yeah, I I said well, we were rehearsing on, uh, and I never really heard Jeff play before. I mean, I I sort of uh, admired him in Asia. Obviously, I'd heard him in Asia, and I'd heard some. I wasn't a big follower of Yes, um, but I'd heard. Some some stuff that he, you know, he done with yes, and uh, <laughs> we were rehearsing, and uh, and one day I said, you know, you you become my favorite keyboard player because he is so good, and how he interprets the, the the players, you know, that have played in the band, how how. He interprets those players, yet he has his own um, stamp. He's unbelievable. I, I actually think that if it wasn't for him, th- those songs in Asia were fantastic. But I mean, without him, I, I don't know what they would have sounded like. He, the guy, is incredible. No, he. I mean, the, the whole Asia thing was uh, was very much him, and uh, he's got great technique. He's got great feel. He has a a great sense of um, of, of uh, re- recognition of sound and how to get you know the, all the different sounds from from the different eras you know in in, in his setup I and mean, it's great he's uh, he really he really became my favorite keyboard player overnight. <laughs> well, I know I have to let you go, but I got to say I'm going to tell you as a tennis player I think you're I'm going to guess I think you're a baseliner. Up until about five years ago. What happened? Yeah. I suddenly got it. I suddenly <laughs> realized what the hell you had to do. <laughs> I know for a fact that professional tennis players uh, go through the same thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The coaches are going, go to the net, go to the net. I mean, look what the dial did. I mean, you couldn't be a more ultimate baseline dude than Nadal. True. But look look what he's doing at the net these days. It's unbelievable. Uh, how many years did it take for him to do that? Yeah, it, it took <laughs> it took him it took him twenty eight years. I mean, I found you know I I played in college and I find that I'm much better now, even though I'm older and slower because I'm I'm more efficient. And I think with Nadal, he's become a more efficient player because he can't stay back there at thirty one and grind the way he did when he was twenty one. No, he he had to do it, but uh, yeah, but he. Not everyone can do it. Not everyone uh, uh, can become a, a, a great net player. It, it's you know, and some of the you know the, the great doubles players. When you see what they can do at the net, you realize quite how difficult it is. Uh, I didn't like it there at all, but then then you, when you figure it out and how to uh, how to end the point, um, you know. Gotta do it. Well, yeah, because you can get out of there in an hour instead of two. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, Tony, it's what a pleasure to talk to you. I, I It's really a nice chat, and I appreciate your time, and, and congratulations on the milestone. Great. My, my pleasure, Alex. Well, there you go. Just two guys talking about tennis, life, and uh, a band that's been around for 50 years. Tony K of Yes, great chat with that guy. Do check out the uh, Yes tour if you can. I do think that it will be worth your while. Also worth your while, checking out Bombshell Radio online. Bombshellradio.com will get you there. And uh, if you're on iTunes, please subscribe to Bombshell Radio and subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast. It would mean the world to us. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, or anybody you want me to interview, please drop me a line, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com or on Twitter at Embers Editor. Let's close things off with some music from Yes, and I will see you next week for another episode of Stereo Embers, the podcast. You open up your eyes, see what I see. Do you see the same things every day? Do you think of a way to start the day? Getting things in proportion, spread the news. Time that will help us get it together again. Have you heard of the word that will stop us going wrong? Well, the time is near, the word you'll hear when you get things in perspective. Spread the news and help. That will help us get it together again Have you heard of the word that will stop us?